0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to New Spring. Thank you for coming out on a holiday weekend and in the middle of a deluge. Uh, I know a lot of you watch around the country, and some of you are watching in foreign countries around the world, but in Kansas right now, I'm wondering if I shouldn't have had a series on Noah <laughs> <laughs> with the weather we've been having. But thank you for coming out. I will say this, though, in two weeks, we begin the biggest series I've ever been part of in my life. It's called Clash of Dynasties the Chronicles of Daniel, and I can't wait to get started. I'm living in the book of Daniel for hours every day, and it is an amazing book. This little book, uh, 12 chapters long in the Old Testament, I think is the most intriguing book of the Bible. For one thing, it tells a lot of the future, and not just the future, future from Daniel's perspective, but a lot of the future that is yet to be fulfilled in our lifetime. In fact, there are things happening in our world today. And I, <laughs> Just this week, that I look at as a fulfillment of the book of Daniel. So, clearly, we're going to be talking a lot about the future. Daniel speaks a lot about the last end time world empire. We'll be talking about that in week three. In week two, I actually have a sermon that I can't wait to bring on angels, because angels appear throughout the book of Daniel. So if you've ever been curious about angels, who they are, um, and what they're about, week two of that series is going to talk about that. There is a message on the Antichrist, because Daniel says more about him than anybody. And wonderfully, he talks a lot about Jesus. In fact, we're going to be talking about the places where Jesus appears in Daniel, even though... Uh, Jesus will not be born on the earth for about five centuries after that. And as I said, I'm committing hours to studying Daniel every day. I don't want to let you down. I was talking to our board in our board meeting a few days ago, and I said, I honestly believe I could preach a year or two from the book of Daniel, but we only have nine weeks, so I'm going to try to bring you the center cuts of this book and what it has to say about our time. But today, I want to bring you a message, and although it's not really part of the Daniel series, it could be. The message that I bring on this Memorial Day weekend is a message called America Caught in the Clash of Dynasties. Um, I've been preaching since I was 16, and it's, it's hard for me now to think about those days because they've been so long ago, but when God called me to preach, I was in the middle of my junior year in high school, And I did not want to be a preacher. In fact, God really had to work hard to get my attention. I don't know if you've discovered this, but God doesn't usually work by striking us with lightning. He just works by leaning on us real heavily. And that's what he did. Up until that point, my goal in life was to be an attorney, which is absolutely nothing wrong and a lot of good about that. I wanted to be an attorney, and then I wanted to go into broadcast journalism, and ultimately I wanted to go into politics. But God had a different plan. And I've laughed about it so much through the years because here at New Spring, I've been part of some kind of broadcasting since I think 1991. So I've definitely had all the broadcasting that I want. And I pastored a Baptist church for many years. So Lord knows I've had all the politics (laughs) any human being could ever want. But God's ways are great. And and he put his hand on me to preach. And I started preaching when I was 16. It was strange. I committed my life to preaching in January of 1973. I preached my first sermon, New Year's Eve in 72. But right after I committed my life to preach, just doors of opportunity started opening. And thankfully, they've never stopped opening since that year. I preached my first conference when I was 16. It's hard to believe that. And in those days, I would speak a lot to high school students. I would speak when what they used to call youth meetings or youth conferences. And... I got asked a question oftentimes in those days. You know, I would preach, and then after I would get through preaching, there would be a line of people wanting to ask me questions about the Bible, which is kind of funny when you think about asking a 16-year-old kid questions about the Bible. But I got asked a question then, but I still get asked that question. In fact, I got asked by a very good friend of mine. Uh, just a few weeks ago. And that question is, do you see America in Bible prophecy? In other words, can you open the pages of the Bible that speak prophetically about the future? And can you find the United States of America? Now, I can find a lot of other nations. I can find Russia real easy. That's child's play for me. Take you right to uh, the Bible that talks specifically about Russia in the last days. I could find China in the Bible. I could definitely find Iran and Iraq in the Bible. I can find Turkey, I can find some African nations, and of course, the one nation the Bible speaks more about in end-time prophecy than any other, definitely could find Israel. But those of us here in the United States, and one more time, I'm very respectful to those of you who are watching from other countries right now, but for those of us here in the United States, we love our nation, just as those of you around the world love your nation, and America is our homeland. And we wonder, is America in Bible prophecy? Does God ever mention us in regard to future times. We know that America has been different from many other nations of the world. It was a long time ago, but America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. Now, clearly America has not always done the right thing, and I don't argue that for a moment, but we were founded upon biblical principles. And God has been very good to America. We have never lost a war. We've mishandled several, but we have never lost a war. We have never had to worry about foreign powers coming into our land and taking over America. America has been good to other nations. I think those who would expect to find America because of altruism would point to the fact that we have been very good to the other nations of the world. I was not around after World War II, I was born quite a while after that, but for those of you who study history, or those of you who might uh, might be old enough to remember as children, the end of World War II, America actually rebuilt the nations that attacked us. With the Marshall Plan, we rebuilt Europe with the great work of Douglas MacArthur. As fine a general as he is, I think his finest work might have been done in Japan as he led in the turning around of Japan. We we actually spent the money after we had just come out of World War II rebuilding the nations of our enemies. We have spent trillions of 2019 dollars, at least dollars in the the way we would view them today. We've spent trillions of dollars aiding and protecting nations who aren't always friendly to us. And so for that reason, among many others, there are those who have been asking me since I was a 16-year-old preacher, does the Bible have a prophecy about the United States of America? And so I want to give you the best answer I have on that. And real quickly, let me just cut to the chase. For those of you who might be wanting to get to a bottom line faster than I will get to it, I will say maybe. I do not know. It's hazy. It's challenging, but I have three answers that I had when I was young, and I still have them to this day. The first possibility is in the book of Ezekiel, there is a mention of what could be a reference to, if nothing else, the normal coalition of nations of which the United States is sometime part. What I do know is in Ezekiel 37, 38, and 39, the Bible is very specific about an invasion that is yet to take place. This is an invasion that is spearheaded by Russia and Iran, which very clearly they are in tight relationship right now. And if you read Ezekiel's prophecy, and some of you may know of this referred to as the Valley of Dry Bones prophecy, God calls Ezekiel in the fifth century B.C. out to a cemetery. And in this vision, there are bones that have been dried for a very long time. So, clearly the bones are there and have been there for, for probably centuries. And then, of course, if you've ever heard the old song, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone, it comes from this story where in Ezekiel's vision, this, these dry bones come back to life again. And when God explains to Israel, uh, explains to Ezekiel what's going on, he's saying in the last days after Israel has been captive, thank you, Lord, for the sound effects. I like that. In the last days, after Israel has been out of its nation for a long time, out of its, out of its sovereignty, God will bring them back into the land. And then in those days, this invasion would take place. Well, of course, we have seen that happen in the last century. Uh, after 2,500 years of not being a sovereign nation, in 1948, Israel became a nation. In 1967, they reacquired the entire city of Jerusalem. And it is interesting, God told Ezekiel that it would happen in a time when Israel would have a very powerful army. And today, even though the nation of Israel is small in regard to population, there are a number of United States, individual states, that have populations far larger than Israel. In fact, we have cities that have more population than Israel, that Israel now is regarded as having the sixth most powerful army in the world just as God decreed. But in these last days, God said that there would be an invasion spearheaded by Russia and Iran and a number of other nations that are mentioned that we'll talk about someday. But what I would point out is in the 13th verse of Ezekiel chapter 38, the Bible lists a few nations that will not be part of this invasion. They will protest the invasion. They won't help Israel, but they will protest the invasion. And among these nations is a country called Tarshish. Um, My most trusted scholar, biblical scholar, is a man named H.A. Ironside. He died about 1952, I think. But I still, to this day, love his commentaries and love his work on the Bible. And here is what Dr. Ironside says about Tarshish, and I quote, Tarshish is generally identified with the lands of the far west of Europe, including part of Spain possibly, but very definitely Great Britain. So when we read this verse about Tarshish, then according to Ironside and other Bible scholars, we are thinking about Great Britain. So when the Bible talks about nations that may not help Israel but will protest, then that's... a probably pretty pretty good analysis of prophecy. But in that verse 13 that speaks of Tarshish, it says Tarshish and the other young lions. Well, some Bible students look at that and they say, well, the lion has always been a symbol of Great Britain. But as we know, there were other countries that were formed out of Great Britain. Uh, one of the things that Great Britain did was, whether, whether through colonization or or just through their influence, other nations were formed as a result. Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But of course, the most known of these, and the largest of these, is the United States of America. So when the Bible says Tarshish and the young lions will protest the invasion of Israel, there are those who say, well, perhaps one of those young lions is the United States of America. Do I believe that? Well, I sure wouldn't, I sure wouldn't risk anything on it I couldn't afford to lose. For one thing, translations can be dicey, and so that translation, Young Lions, may not be the best translation. It is interesting, and I will just tell you, and I won't go into it today, but for personal reasons and what I think this verse talks about, it sure causes me to watch Brexit. And I I watch it pretty carefully because of what I think the Bible could be saying in Ezekiel 38, but I don't know that, and I won't preach it because I don't know it for sure. Maybe it's true. (laughs) There is a second answer to the question Is America found in Bible prophecy? And it could be that the Bible doesn't mention us because the jury is still out. The United States of America is different from many other nations of the world, most other nations, most other nations of history, because we, you and I, are the responsible officers of government. We are a republican form of democracy. And in our democracy, we make the decisions, or at least we are supposed to. So it could be that maybe God does not write about America because we still have the opportunity to write our chapter in this story. Maybe so. But if you backed me into a corner today and you said, Mark, you must tell me what you personally believe about the United States being in prophecy, I will tell you this is what I do believe. I really don't know that God refers to us in prophecy for a very specific reason. More than any other nation of the world, the United States will be a very different nation five seconds after the rapture happens. Have I lived in a polarized nation? Yes, I have. My lifetime, I'm one of the baby boomers. I was born in one of the median years of the baby boom. I have watched American politics be quite polarized. But I must say that when I was young, that polarization tended to be about economic policies. There were a lot of things that were held universally among the hearts and lives and minds of the American people. So politics tended to diversify along along economic lines. Never have I ever seen a total polarization as I see in the United States right now. And even though there are many things that separate us, we have an enormous polarization between those who believe in God and those who do not believe in God. So, I'm just telling you, five seconds after the rapture, America is going to be a completely very different nation than you and I know it today as. And so, my personal feeling is God does not refer to us in history, or in prophecy rather, because those of us who will be interested and pay attention to it, we're not going to be here, So, it's very likely to me that God did not refer to us because America is going to be a very different nation five seconds after the rapture. Now, what is true? Well, in reality, it could be none of those three. It could be one of those three. It could be all of those three. I'm not sure but what I do know about America today, and that I can stand before you and declare without fear of question, and that is that America is caught in the clash of dynasties. And when i talk talking about clash of dynasties, I'm not talking about left versus right. I'm not talking about conservative versus progressive. I'm not talking about those who like Fox News and those who like TMZ or CNN. I'm not talking about that at all. From the very beginning of this world, there has been a clash of the dynasty of God and the dynasty of Satan. And that's, the rest of it's just smoke and mirrors. The rest of it is just means to an end. So we're living in this clash of dynasties. I need to let you know I was not scheduled to preach this week. I was scheduled to be off, but a few things happened in the schedule that caused me to wind up preaching. And the more I knew I was preaching, the more I had a sense that God wanted me to bring a specific message. So I bring this message today because I believe God has directed me to, and it is going to be a serious message. And it's going to be a message that when we all walk out of here, we may even be a little bit polarized today. But I'm responsible to bring the message that God wants me to bring. And so with that in mind, I want to bring you a message called America Caught in the Clash of Dynasties, a Memorial Day message for 2019. We, of course, are entering into Memorial Day celebration. Tomorrow is Memorial Day here in the United States. And we as American citizens are called upon to remember crosses. All over our world, there are cemeteries that mark the graves of men and women who have given their lives to defend America. And those graves are marked with crosses. I often think on Memorial Day about a poem that is written by a Canadian doctor. His name is John McRae, and while he was in World War I in in, uh, in Europe, he saw that fields that had been battlefields were often gashed and churned into mud by cannon fire and mortar fire. But the first thing that would grow after that field had been churned into mud was red poppies. And in 20 minutes, he wrote, wrote a poem that I think is still the greatest Poem about those who have died protecting freedom in battle. It's called Flanders Fields. And the poem goes like this In Flanders Fields, the poppies blow between the crosses, row and row, that mark our place. And in the sky, the larks still bravely singing fly, scarce heard amid the guns below. And then this line always gives me chills We are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved. And now we lie in Flanders fields. Take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands, we throw the torch. Be yours to hold it high. And this line, if you break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep, though poppies grow in Flanders fields. We don't use poppies to mark Memorial Day here in the United States but I've had the privilege of speaking a number of times in Canada. Their Memorial Day is called Remembrance Day, and it's in November. For some reason, I've spoken in Toronto a couple of times during Remembrance Day, and I stand before a great audience like this, and men and women will all have a red poppy on their coats or jackets or shirts because of this poem. But when I think about remembering those who have died for our freedoms, I think about that one line, if you break faith, because that's what it means to remember, to keep faith. See, when we remember those who have given their lives for us tomorrow, it's not like remembering your phone number. It's not that kind of remembering. It is to keep faith, to keep the faith. And I really believe that on this Memorial Day, Americans need to ask ourselves the question, are we keeping faith with those men and women who have paid the ultimate price for us? But it isn't just keeping faith with those who have died in our place. American Christians are called to not only remember crosses, but a cross. Because our true Memorial Day starts with the Son of God who hung on the cross that the other crosses symbolize, and he bought our eternal freedom with his blood. I preach this message today, not specifically New Spring, but I preach this message today because I fear we as Americans have forgotten. You know, there's something really wretched about forgetting what we should remember. As I said earlier, we've been so blessed in America. We've been protected. But for the last century, America as a nation has done basically everything it can do to flip God off. In the last hundred years in the United States, we have demonized God and we have glorified demons. And that is where we are. In 1962, our Supreme Court issued a ruling. It was a fairly narrow ruling, but it opened the door. It was the limb for poisonous fruit to grow in the future. And that ruling simply stated that there could not be coerced prayer in public schools, but since that time, that ruling has been used to edge God completely out of public life. If I were to talk today to many of you, and New Spring tends to be a young church, if I were to talk to many of you who are under 40, and I were to talk about reading a Scripture verse in a public school, there are those, even of you who are Christ followers, who would say, I believe that that is unconstitutional. But I need to let you know that is a fairly recent interpretation of the law. When I was an eighth grader at a large middle school in the inner city of Fort Worth, I was asked to read the Easter story from the Bible for our Easter program. Now, there were three assemblies because it was a large middle school. I was an eighth grader. There was an assembly for us, assembly for the seventh graders, assembly for the sixth graders. There was a girl in the sixth grade I did not know named Mary Alice McDonald, but I know her very well today. So, Mary Alice has been listening to me read Scripture for a long time. But I remember when I was rehearsing with the drama department and the speech department for that, for that presentation. Our drama teacher, Mr. Ware, said, Mark, when you get to the place where you find those three words, he is risen. He said, I want you to bite off every word. I still remember him telling me that. And see, the thing about it is there's so many of us here today who would think that is bizarre, and yet that was what America was just a few short years ago. In 1962, there was that ruling and subsequent rulings since. In 1973, the Supreme Court found in the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment an implied right to privacy, and they somehow mined out from that language that we now had a right to abort on demand. And since that time in 1973, we have killed over 60 million babies, most in the name of convenience. And now we have states in the United States that are determining that it is just fine to kill a baby right up until the moment of birth, and it's getting a little hazy even after that. And yet there are many of us who are God followers who would say, well, the Constitution gives a right to abort. Have you read the 14th Amendment, and could you locate it if you had to? I dare say you could not. And then in 2015, we decided that we were smarter than God and we could redefine marriage. In Genesis, the Bible tells us that God made them male and female. And four times in the Bible, Genesis, Jesus gave it twice in the Gospels, and we also have it in the church epistles, four times. God gives us the formula for marriage. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they two shall become one flesh." But of course, we live in a world today where that has been completely redefined. And we have all these decisions and we have all the poison fruit that hangs from those poison branches. And someone will say, well, Mark, you are living in the past. No, I'm not. Actually, that's the one thing I never do. Let me ask you a question. The biggest series I've ever been part of it, is it always the last series or the next series? No, I've never lived in the past. I don't celebrate well. I never look back. I learned a long time ago as a leader, I never was going to be a brilliant man. I don't have a great intellect, but I thought what I need to do is be two, three steps ahead. I'm always thinking ahead. I'm not in the past. When I think about where I'm going to to put my life down on the table, where I'm going to put my chips down, I'm going to put them on the future. I don't want to bet right today. I want to bet right tomorrow. We're sitting on some land here. I started looking for land in 1991. We, we, were, we were 12 miles away. We'll be celebrating some of this next week. But I remember I wanted to be out here. I wanted us to have land on, the, on K96. Well, you should understand that in those days, there was nothing out here but a road. How many times when I shared with our congregation where I wanted us to be, I heard over and over, Mark wants to take us to the middle of nowhere. Think about that when you get in traffic when you leave today. Mark wants to take us in the middle of nowhere. I heard Mark wants to take us out to a bunch of Milo fields. Well, today, of course, it's been proven that this was, a, this was the place to be. But if we had waited all that time, we were a church of 500 people in those days, we could have never afforded to be out here. See, I, I, I'm not living in the past. I, I want to think two, three steps ahead. I understand where our world is today, and I understand that some of the things I've postulated already from, from Scripture are intensely unpopular today. I totally get that. But I'm not concerned about being popular with the world right now. I'm concerned about being popular in the coming regime. When Jesus Christ comes, I want to make sure I'm right there. And there are those who will say, well, Mark, you know what? I'm going to believe what the culture believes today, but then when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, I'm going to switch over and be part of his team. Hey, Jesus called that and said it's impossible. He, talked to, he gave a story in which there were 10 bridesmaids. Five were ready and five were not ready. They put off getting ready and then when the bridegroom came, they were too late. And that's what I'm saying to us today. You and I have to, we have to, we have to carve out our position. And it's not putting money on the table, it's putting your soul on the table. And in this world that you and I live in today, we've got to decide whether we're living in the present or living in the future. I mean, I want to make the right decision, not just for this land, that's important. I want to make the right decision in my life for the future. And so I'm not looking at the past For those who believe in God, we need to listen to a couple of verses today. Among my favorite books of the Bible is a book called Deuteronomy. I know it's got a weird name, but Deuteronomy is the last book of the Pentateuch. It's the last of the five books that Moses wrote. And to this day, to me, that book just sizzles because Moses is an elderly leader talking to a young generation. If you've studied the Bible, you know that God brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and promised to take them to the promised land. But early on, when they had a chance to go over pretty quickly after they left Egypt, the people of Israel choked at a moment of destiny. And God said to the adults, I'm going to wait till you all die. You're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And then when you all die off, I'm going to take, the you don't want to take your kids into the promised land. So now all of those 40 years pass when you read Deuteronomy and Moses is talking to those kids who've grown up and they are the ones who will go into Canaan. And so Moses is coaching them up on how to think and live. And here's what he said to them in Deuteronomy 6. And hardly a day goes by that I don't think about these words. He said, So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, when you have eaten and are full then beware, lest you forget the Lord. Remember, this is Memorial Day to remember, and yet God is saying, beware that you don't forget the Lord. Now, three things jump out of the page for me. First is the word beware. Beware means you have a legitimate reason to be afraid. And when I'm at the ocean and I see a sign, a flag up that says, beware of rip currents, and I pay attention to that. When I'm going to someone's house and there's a sign in the window that says, beware of dog, I assure you I pay attention to that. <laughs> beware means you have a legit reason to be afraid. So God is saying to the people of Israel, you have a legitimate reason to be afraid. Now, the second thing that jumps off the page to me is when God tells them they should be afraid. Because these people have been through all kinds of things. I mean, if you think about their history, they have been through Red Seas flooded. They had had Pharaoh's army chase them. They had had snakes come after them. They had run out of food and run out of water in the desert. All those are kinds of things that would make a person afraid. And yet God never told them to beware during those times. God said, beware when, everything, when you've got everything you want. And then the thing that stands out to me perhaps the most is who they were to beware of, and that was God. God was saying, I can, handle, I can handle snakes. I can handle it if you run out of food. I can handle Pharaoh and his army. The one thing God said I can't handle is if you forget me. And he told them to beware All of that leads me in this Memorial Day sermon 2019 to ask a question, and I ask you today, what is the greatest threat to America? Is it radical Islam? Well, that's a serious threat, but I don't think it's our biggest threat. Is it the corrupt political system? I don't like it either, but I don't think that's our biggest problem. Is it anti-God progressivism? And I I put anti-God in there as a modifier because I understand all progressivism is not anti-God, but there certainly is a strain of it in our nation today. Well, I'm troubled by it, but I don't think that's our biggest threat. Is it our fast-growing restriction on freedom of speech? That one really troubles me, but I don't believe that's the biggest threat to America today. I may shock you with this but I believe it with all of my heart. The greatest threat to America is the cowardly church, the distracted church. And I'm not talking about individual churches like New Spring. When I mention church there, I'm talking about it in a general sense of followers of people who claim to be followers, of people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. You say, Mark, are you honestly saying to me that you believe that the cowardly church is a bigger threat to America than radical Islam in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. It's too easy. That's a two-inch pot. But I want to go a step further today and, and say that churches are led by leaders. So consequently, I guess it could be rightfully said that the greatest threat to America is cowardly preachers, people who stand like I stand before you today. In America, we have watched the growth of what is called the megachurch. A megachurch is a church that has more than 2,000 in attendance. Well, New Spring has long been a megachurch. It's, it's an unusual phenomenon. When I was a kid growing up, a church that averaged what New Spring averages today might have been the largest church in America, or at least the second largest. And today, we barely crack the top 100. So we live in an age of very large churches and leaders who lead very large churches. And in that process, we have become as leaders popular. We have become kind of small celebrities. And so many of the leaders who stand where I stand are so terrified of losing our popularity that many of us will back away in a millisecond if someone calculatedly accuses us of being a hater because we say what God says. I feel it. I feel that pressure, and I fear that I've been guilty because I understand the standard is is God's standard. I remember some time ago I preached on a hot-button topic, maybe the hot-button topic. And most of the time this kind of response doesn't get all the way to me, but for some reason this did. A, A man wrote me and said that if you preach on that topic again. Topic again. We love New Spring, he said, but if you preach on that topic again, we will not stay in the church. Well, I sort of understood his situation. I was sympathetic with his situation, but I thought to myself, sir, you, don't, you just don't understand me at all because I'm not the slightest bit concerned about being unpopular. I'm concerned about the fact I have to stand before the living God someday, and he is going to ask me, did you preach the word? I am thankful for how we've grown, and I'm thankful for how God has worked and moved at New Spring Church. But as much as I would hate to give up anyone, I would see us become a smaller group if that's what it took to stand with God in a heartbeat. I don't want that to happen. I don't believe it will. But what is happening today in so many American churches that believe the Bible is that so often preachers preach safely on the sidelines, often about true stuff, stuff that any Christian should know, but it really doesn't move the football down the field. I call it fortune cookie preaching. You know, fortune cookies don't offend, but there's not too much to take seriously. And I I get on the social media sites and, and the Christian sites and I see what preachers are saying and there's like this statement that some preacher makes and it's like, wow, it gets posted, articles are written about it. And I'm like, well, duh. But you understand, it's safely on the sideline. It's a fortune cookie stuff. It doesn't offend, but it doesn't move the football. And this is so pervasive in the church My greatest fear is that Christianity has been redefined, and Christianity redefined is not Christianity. It's to the place now where what is referred to as Christianity in America is largely narcissism plus Jesus. It's what I like. It's do I like it, do I not like it? The friends that I hang with, do they feel that way or think that way? And that's what caused that man to say to me, if you preach on this topic again, we, we will not stay in New Spring. Consequently, the arbiter of truth in their mind becomes what is comfortable with me. That is not Christianity at all. That's 180 degrees away from Christianity. See what I'm saying? And yet in our culture today, That is oftentimes called Christianity. Well, just so that you will know that I'm not creating a problem where there isn't one, I want you to hear what God said to preachers. I think about this scripture all the time. In fact, it keeps me awake night. I want you to hear what God said to preachers through Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel. God said to Ezekiel, preach against the preachers of Israel, who are making up things out of their own heads and calling it prophesying or preaching. Preach to them the real thing. Tell them, listen to God's message. God the master pronounces doom on the empty-headed preachers who do their own thing and know nothing of what's going on. The fact is, they've lied to my people. They've said, no problem, everything's just fine when everything's not just fine. And this is the line that gives me chills. Because you, God's talking to preachers, because you've made it easy, for others to persist in evil so that it wouldn't even dawn on them to turn to me so that I could save them. God said, as of now, you're finished. No more delusion mongering, no more sermonic lies. I'm going to rescue my people from your clutches and you'll realize that I'm the God. One of the most important things that we could ever read, we just read a moment ago, because somebody could listen to me and you could say, well, Mark, I just think we should never say anyone's doing anything wrong that makes them feel bad. Guys, Listen to me, please. Feeling bad about what I do wrong is nothing compared to going to hell. And a person who will not tell the truth because they claim to have sympathy for a person, they will not, and you just read it with me, God is saying you don't tell them the truth because if you told them the truth, they would would know they need to turn to me and not be judged but to be saved. And if a preacher will not tell the truth about sin, he can say or she can say that what they are saying is in order to be affirming when in reality they are cosmic terrorists. Because God says to those who do what I do, your responsibility is to tell the truth because when we know that we are sinners, it makes us know we need a Savior. And it's so that we will turn to God and be forgiven. And even though we are flawed, broken people with many sins, that we will continue to have into our lives until Jesus comes back. When we know we need a Savior, then we get help. But if, if, if a person, you know, it would be like a person going to the doctor who had traits of cancer developing and that doctor would know that Perhaps they're in the early stages of cancer, but they would know that the treatment for it might not be something that person would be comfortable with. So the doctor would say, hey, you're just fine. It's no problem. That doctor would not be the friend of that person. That doctor would be a medical terrorist. And that's what we have in America today. On June 6th, I will celebrate my 34th year here at New Spring. And I stand before you today, not knowing if I have many days or few days. I stand before you today afresh and anew. And as I approach my 34th anniversary here, I commit to you that I will preach the word of God without fear of favor. <clears throat> Finally today, as I close out, and I'm out of time. For those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ and you're troubled by the world around us, I preach today to give you hope. When I was a young preacher, in the late 70s and early 80s, there were religious leaders in America. I think they were good men and women. And I'm sure that there was some legitimate basis to what they did, although I think ultimately their, their ideas were, were not right. But there was the feeling among American Christian leaders that we needed to build a political majority. And out of that political majority came what was known as the religious right. And I think there were some good things that happened, but as you and I both know, there were some very bad things that happened. But I think that the problem that we have with that is thinking that our answer is a political majority. Because God has never worked through majorities. He's always worked through the few. There is a story in the Bible of Jonathan um, Jonathan's dad was King Saul, and he was, a, he was not a good leader, and, and the Israelites are being attacked by the Philistines, and so uh, the Israelites are kind of quaking in their tents, and nothing was happening. It's kind of hard to be a soldier in the field when your leaders don't have the courage to attack the enemy. You can't go home, and you can't attack the enemy, and Jonathan got kind of tired of this, and so he said to his armor bearer, why don't you and I just go attack the whole Philistine army? Well, that's kind of crazy when you think about it, but I want you to hear what Jonathan said. It's just two of us against all those godless men. But the Lord can help a few soldiers win a battle just as easily as he can help a whole army. God's not calling us to fight physically, but God is calling us to stand for him with truth. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't have to have a majority. In fact, you by yourself plus God make a majority. And he is calling Christians to understand we haven't been, we haven't been raised up to feel some kind of political majority. We've been called and raised up to live for God in these days. So if that's you today, as I close out, and you say, Well, Mark, I feel like I'm just a tiny, tiny voice in a sea, a of cacophony of, of evil, what can I do? This and I'm finished. I didn't realize this until I was bringing the four o'clock service yesterday. I got to this scripture and it hit me the very first time I ever preached in this spot. May 23rd, 1999. The very first time I preached in this spot, I preached this verse. And I leave it with you today on Memorial Day. God said, if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves... And pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. See, it's so easy for those of us who follow Jesus to look at people out there that are doing all kinds of awful things and talk about their wicked ways. But God is like, Mark, you can't change them, but you can change your wicked ways. Now, one more time, look at that. If my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... God said, I will do three things. I will hear, I will forgive, and I will heal their land. Now, I don't think I need to talk to you about what it means to humble yourselves. I think you know what it means to pray. I think you know what it means to turn from wicked ways. But what is that one expression, seek my face? What exactly does that mean? I think it's maybe the most important one for us today. Every man in this room who's in a relationship or married, you know already. You you may not know that you know it, but you do know it. You know what it means to seek someone's face. How many of you guys have learned that just because the woman in your life says you can do something doesn't always mean you can? Especially when she says, just go ahead and do it. A smart man will slow down. And you know, how many of you have learned that just because she's silent about it (laughs) doesn't mean that you've gotten permission? I don't know what you guys do. I've been married for a long time. I look at her face because her face will tell me, regardless of what her words say, her eyes will tell me if she doesn't like the idea. So consequently, I seek her face. You and I live in a time where it can be very quiet and someone could say, well, Mark, and I've had people tell me this. You know what? Hey, I'm sleeping with somebody who's not my wife, but I haven't been struck by lightning yet. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing stuff that I know is wrong, but God didn't, God's okay with it. In fact, I had a guy tell me one time, God's got my back. You know what it means to seek God's face? It is, God, what do you really think about my life? I'm seeking, I want to know. I don't want to just feel like I can do anything I want to do and call it Christianity. I want to know where your face is. And God has said, of my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves, which means it's not about what we like or don't like. If we will humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, God said, I will hear your prayer, and I will forgive your sin, and I will heal your land. Now, real quickly, and I know I'm in overtime here, but I, today I brought, a, I brought a message about why preachers preach about sin. Because the The end is not so that someone will feel judgment. It's so that we'll understand our need of a Savior. Do you know, I think there are reasons why a lot of people pray and ask God to save them, but it it just doesn't work. And I'll tell you why. It goes back to something that the angels spoke to Joseph about right before Jesus was born. The angel said to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Jehovah Hoshia, which means God saves. So you understand that. The angel said to Joseph, you will call his name God saves because he shall, work with me for a second, he shall save his people from their sin. I think that's the most overlooked prepositional phrase in American Christianity today. Because a lot of people think, He saves us from hell. So I I don't have any problem with sin, and I don't think what God says is sin is sin. I don't think there's any problem. But you understand, when we go to God and we say, God, I want you to save me, but we don't think sin is sin, God is like, I don't know what to do with that prayer. We're told that Jesus didn't just come to save us from hell. He came to save us from our sins. And that is when we know we're wrong before God, and we know that we break God's law, but we come to God and we say, Jesus, I'm asking you to be my Savior. You bled on the cross to pay for my sin, and three days later, you walked out of the grave, and by the grace of God, I'm trusting you to help me live a new life. If you're ready to make that decision today, I want to just pray with you before this service is over. I'll pray this slowly and give you an opportunity, if you really want to own these words, to say them to God, and then he'll hear our prayer. Let's all bow our heads for just a moment, dear God. I know I'm a sinner and I can't save myself but I believe you love me anyway. I come to you asking you to forgive me of my sins. I am willing to agree with you. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. Would you save a sinner like me in Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, if you don't mind going straight to one of our info centers or all around the campus, I have a box prepared for you that's got a Bible like I preach from, a book I wrote, and a lot of cool stuff. Just say, I prayed with Mark. Thanks for being here. Happy Memorial Day.